This is the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. And they don't come much bigger and championship point in a Masters 1000 event. He serves to the forehand. It's a deep return from Schwarzman, who now pushes Djokovic back to his backhand side. It's backhand to backhand at the moment. Djokovic happy to trade punches. Schwarzman goes deep to the backhand of Djokovic. Backhand Schwarzman. Djokovic happy to pepper the backhand of Schwarzman. Schwarzman happy to pepper the backhand of Djokovic. It's one of these long rallies down the line from Djokovic. Off the top of the net, the rally goes on. Forehand from Djokovic flattened out. A slice from Schwarzman. Sits up for Djokovic, who goes into the forehand corner. A slice from Schwarzman. Sits up for Djokovic who comes into the net, a lob from Schwarzman. Djokovic will let this bounce. It's on his baseline. It's lofted from Djokovic into the last bit of the uh, court from Schwarzman. Now a drop shot, Djokovic. A forehand from Schwarzman is wide. Djokovic raises his arms. It's a 36th Masters 1000 title for this remarkable serve. He now has a smile on his face and there's a very small embrace between the two at the net as much as they feel they're allowed. This was a fascinating final, but when push came to shove, Djokovic found that little bit extra. And while most of the long rallies went to Schwarzman on championship point, it was Djokovic who found the bit extra. The week the spectators came back to tennis. Novak Djokovic wins his 36th Masters title, his 81st title overall, and overtakes Pete Sampras as the second longest reign at the top of the world rankings. Welcome to the ATP Tennis Radio podcast. I'm Chris Bowers. On the other side of the socially distanced screen in our Rome Masters commentary box is Claire Curran. And Claire, we have to put this down as another chapter in the chronicle of this impressive and remarkable tennis player, Novak Djokovic. Well, we certainly do. And it's even more remarkable based on what just happened in New York and the way that he responded. And it's the only way that you would expect somebody who is the world number one, somebody who has the titles that he does to respond. There was times that it wasn't his best tennis throughout the week, but he was able to do what great champions do, and that was to find a way to win. Yes, it hasn't been his best form throughout the week. Um, he came into this with a lot of pressure on him. He seemed to deal with the pressure initially and then had to work his way through changing weather conditions because it was sunny for most of the week and then a very overcast um, set of conditions for the final. Absolutely. You wouldn't expect coming into your first clay court event to be your best tennis, and that's definitely for sure. This this event for the players was also about working their way into form, getting matches under their belt. This first clay court event for 15 months. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, we, we, have, we have such high expectations for Djokovic and we expect him to be able to bring this high level all the time but what he has to do firstly is he has to bring the level that's going to beat the opponent across the other side of the net and he continued to do that and he had a lot of challenging situations throughout the week which can only be good for him because how he responded in those challenging situations was to play some of his best tennis his serve was working very very well under pressure physically he looked to be moving exceptionally well he was implementing the drop shot a lot and I think that's going to be very important for him going towards Paris but really despite a couple of little outbursts 
what he did well was he just got himself right back on track straight after them and produced some great tennis. Responding to the challenges is obviously very good for him. What about his reputation, though? I mean, obviously, it took a bit of a battering in New York. One got a sense that maybe there were people that quite enjoyed the fate that befell him there. Here he was lost it a little bit in the quarterfinal and the semi-final but came through that he now finds himself as the world number one for the 287th week only roger federer at 310 weeks has done more and that's less than half a year if you think 23 weeks the difference between the two now and it's hard to know who might then uh, who might stop Djokovic reaching that uh, uh, mark of 310. where do you think his standing is in the tennis world at the end of this week well, I think it certainly will have helped, and obviously the 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 press that goes more towards now talking about Djokovic, the tennis player, rather than Djokovic, the man. And what he did very well this week was at the very start of the tournament, before he played, he addressed all the issues. He talked about what happened in New York. He obviously apologised. Of course, he maybe could have done that in in New York at the time. He weighed it, but look, he weighed it, and he said he's not perfect. But then he went out on the tennis court and he showed, you know, what has made him just such a global star. And he's very, very popular in Italy. And he himself says that if he wasn't playing at home or in China, Italy's where, where he wants to be. He looked very happy. And I think I think he's actually put that to rest. I wonder whether actually when he left the Flushing Meadows Stadium, uh, having not done a press conference, whether he actually thought, Do you know, I prefer to face the media in Italy where I feel at home. He's got an Italian manager, he speaks Italian, an Italian uh, communications officer. Just wonder whether that was actually, if you're going to pick a moment for admitting that you got something wrong and that you need to grow personally, it's easier to do that in a friendly environment, which is Italy is for him. Well, that's a, that's a very, very good point. And obviously he had an awful lot of time to think about it. I think for him, yes, it was right, but I think for everybody else that was involved and also the fans across the world and for everybody, it still would have been nice to hear him straight after that, maybe make that apology. In the final, he beat Diego Schwarzman, who had a terrific week. I hope we don't just look upon this as a, a single week. I hope this launches him because he beat Nadal on Friday. He then followed up with a three-hour, 15-minute win in a very 50-50 match against an up-and-coming player in Denis Shapovalov. And then he seriously pushed Djokovic in the final. 7-5-6-3 will look like a comfortable win for Djokovic, but Djokovic was a breakdown in both sets. Well, he was, and it was a one-hour, 11-minute first set. And it might have been the fact that that set took so long, and you said it at the end of the match, despite Djokovic losing the majority of the long points, he finished the, finished the match winning the long point, but it was lo those long points that, that Diego Schwartzman, that was having to win um, that that maybe at the end of it just took his legs away from him. He had to work so hard. But yeah, I certainly hope so. He's made the quarterfinals of the French Open before. Back in 2018, he was one set up against Nadal in that French Open quarterfinals. Play was suspended for the day. He came back. He lost the next three sets. But he's clearly an exceptionally good clay court player. He should take a lot of confidence from that win against Nadal. But really, it's so impressive that he followed it up the next day against Shapovalov. Well, 
Clearly the headline from the Rome Masters 2020, apart from the fact that it took place and the fact that we had spectators back, is that Djokovic has won his 36th Masters 1000 title, his 81st title overall. But it, coming up, we will be looking back on the whole week in Rome and looking at the points that emerged and the talking points that came out of a week that we're all very grateful happened and a highly successful week it was too. And later in this podcast, we'll be looking forward to Roland Garros, which begins on Sunday. They say it's the great Greatest era of tennis ever seen. Federer stretches, makes it! The bar has been raised to new heights. Djokovic should be able to smash it away, he does! And for those looking up, reaching the summit is going to take something special. Oh, wow! The climb will be tough, but the view will be worth it. The stage is set, the world is waiting. Extraordinary! Find the greatness within every player, every week, at every tournament, at atptour.com. The sheer fact that the Rome tournament happened, has finished and has gone successfully with fans for the semi-finals and final is a remarkable achievement and credit to the Italian Tennis Federation, the authorities in Rome, the good sense of the public who've respected the rules and the ATP as the tour body for making it all happen. The return of the fans, Claire, just made it feel like a remarkable milestone despite the growing infection rate in various parts of the world and we've had plenty of talking points over the week in the Italian capital. One of them was the return to action of Djokovic, who we've just been talking about, and his first round match, when or his first match when he seemed to be totally comfortable with the fact that it, the world was talking about the first match after the default, was fine. But then in the quarterfinals, he smashed a racket and he got another warning in the semi-finals. Do you think that his emotions are closer to the surface than it sometimes appears when he's playing this sublime tennis? I mean, I think he's got an awful lot of stress on him, and, and I don't think we can ever underestimate just what kind of stress does too. But obviously, a player like Djokovic, he has, he's got so much kind of going on, and there's so much obviously talked about his mentality. But what stands out to me with him, it's obviously he has these little outbursts, but it's how he responds to them. And I think that, that Djokovic, is, he talks an awful lot about the growth of himself as a tennis player, but also a person. And I think he has this understanding that, that, that he's not perfect, nobody is perfect. But the fact that he accepts that so easily already, it, it makes it whenever he does do something, such as obviously what happened in New York and whenever he breaks a racket here and whenever he gets a verbal obscenity as well, it, it makes him put that behind him so quickly because he has such an acceptance that that he isn't the, the, the perfect person. Well, that racket, broke, uh, racket break came in the quarterfinals against Dominic Kupfer. Djokovic had led four-love first set, was pegged back. He won that set. He led three-love in the second, but then was pegged back again as Kupfer neared levelling the match at one set all. He broke the racket. And guess what was the first question in his press conference? It was that. And this is what Djokovic had to say in response. Let me tell you that it's not the first nor the last record that I'll break in my career. I've done it before, I'll probably do it again. Uh, I don't want to do it, but when it comes, it happens. I just, that's how I, I guess, release sometimes my anger and it's definitely not the best message out there, especially for the, for the young tennis players looking at me and I, I don't encourage that uh, definitely, but um, look, we are all we're all people. We all do our best. There were times when, and periods when I when I don't do that. There are sometimes periods when I do. So it's just it's it's unpredictable, really. I mean, in life, what can happen? And uh, I am um, working on my mental and emotional health as much as I'm working on my physical health. That's 
always been uh, a part of my, uh, I guess, um, training and, and, and recovery as well, uh, developing a strong character and, and understanding myself on different levels, the holistic approach to life. So, uh, well, that's just me. And, uh, of course, I'm not perfect and I'm, I'm doing my best. It's a real balancing act, isn't it? Because uh, here is a guy who I think talks in many ways like all of us. He knows that there are aspects. You know, we, I'm sure there's something in everybody's life that brings out the red mist, even if some people don't react quite as uh, uh, viciously as others. But he is somebody who is driven by his competitive spirit. And so if he calms down too much he will maybe become less competitive and that's the balance he's got to find he does and I, I don't I don't actually think that I think so many of us we all have it in us but I actually don't think many of us actually talk about it or, or accept it in the way that uh, Djokovic actually does but it's a really fine line isn't it Chris between somebody identifying that this is a problem but then how far into that problem do you go? And I think obviously what, what you're trying to say is that if you go too far into it, you lose a little bit of what makes him such a competitor and, and the fighter that, that he actually is. So it's he, he has to find strategies and I'm, I'm sure he does have them because we don't know to the extent of actually just how angry he actually can get on the court this he, he may already be controlling that anger quite significantly on the court and you see him taking an awful lot of deep breaths you see during that change of ends just trying to kind of clear his thoughts completely but he uses time very effectively in between those outbursts i mean someone like um Arthur Ashe, who did these little meditations in a Wimbledon final when he was playing Jimmy Connors all those years back, uh, ago. Uh, we see Shapovalov now closing his eyes. We've seen Victoria Azarenka in the women's uh, side sitting almost in a lotus position mm -hmm. on her chair. Do you think Djokovic needs to get to a, a further element of calmness? Because clearly someone like Nadal can just let it go. I don't. I actually don't think he needs to change an awful lot about his mentality. He he spoke there about he works very hard on the physical, the emotion and the me the mental side of things. And I think all three of those things he recognizes as he talks about it in a holistic way. He recognizes that they're they're all part of the kind of one parcel and you have to work each one kind of individually. I think for Djokovic, if you remember Djokovic before, I know you will remember him better than me, but if you remember him before 2010, I mean, this was a guy who who, who pulled out of, I think, four grand slams. He, he, he had a bad five-set record. I think his five-set record was 50%. And then you look at post-2010, he, he is like a mental warrior on the court, and 90% of five-set matches he wins. He plays the big points very well. So, okay, he has an occasional out, outburst, burst but with the exception really of that US Open when it cost him dearly in the sense that that he was defaulted from the tournament how big a problem has it been in terms of him getting the re getting the results and being he's one of the greatest players ever and I don't sense that there has to be a lot of change in him well the results have been incredibly mm -hmm. impressive this year <laughs> defaults or no defaults I think he may have a tougher time in Paris though where they're a little bit harsher on people he's quite liked in Rome because uh, he speaks a bit of Italian and he will therefore take great delight in another talking point from this week and that's the emergence of Lorenzo Musetti an 18 year old Italian who came through through the qualifying tournament and made it to the the third round with two highly impressive wins over Stan Vavrinka and Kei Nishikori. Match point number two, the slice from Musetti. Here's Stan with the approach on the backhand side. He's passed! Musetti, magnificent! 
the 18 year old is the first player born in 2002 to win an ATP match and how what a stunning performance do not forget the name Lorenzo Musetti he showed us everything this evening and this is match point Musetti the 18 year old bounces on his toes 40-30, serves down the centre, the forehand return is in, the forehand line from Musetti is nearly good enough, it is good enough! It drifts long from Nishikori, and the 18-year-old with a beaming smile walks to the net, having beaten Vavrinka, he has now taken down Nishikori. And his first two wins at tour level have come at the Rome Masters, and his breakthrough week for now, it must be that continues. And he's beaten Kei Nishikori to reach the round of 16, 6-3-6-4. Well, one of the unwritten rules about being on the tour is that when a young player comes up, get to them early. Well, it's still an adventure for them to talk to the media. And so after his win over Stan Vavrinka, the ATP staff in Rome sat down with Mazzetti and asked him how it felt to be an Italian playing on the biggest courts at the fabled Foro Italico. Here in Italy, in, uh, especially in here in Rome, and, uh, is is a dream that comes true for sure. Um, I remember when I when I came here when I was a child uh, with my family to to see the the champions like Stan, uh, Roger, Rafa, and Nole uh, play here the tournament, and now I have the possibility to to play here and uh, to beat Stan. <laughs> so yeah, I think it's uh, it's a dream. And when you looked at the draw and you saw that your first match was against Stan Wawrinka, that can be quite an intimidating player to face for a young player like yourself. Did that change how you prepared for your first match here in Rome, in the main draw? Uh, no, I mean, uh, every, every round, every player here is, is tough. Uh, but Stan, I mean, three, three times uh, uh, Grand Slam champion, so it was a little, I was a little bit scared, but... Yesterday night I was uh, really relaxed and I enjoyed a lot playing on the central core and uh, I felt from the, from the beginning the, the ball and uh, uh, I knew that uh, I, I would play a, a really good match and uh, yesterday night was, uh, was even better and uh, with, the, with the win that, I mean I didn't expect that but uh, I hope that. So Italy has a rich tennis history, as we all know, but how much have players like Fabio, players like Matteo, when you see the success they've had on tour, how much does that resonate with you as a young Italian player and do you draw inspiration from those players? Yeah, of course. Uh, Fabio, Matteo are, are idols for me because uh, from my childhood I, I, I grown uh, like watching like them play and... Uh, I had the opportunity the last two years to warm up Fabio in some, in some Grand Slam juniors. And for me, they are, they are an inspiration because they, they motivate me to, to play better and to train harder and to work harder. So I think they, they are my inspiration. Okay, so we're here in Rome. Italy has the next-gen finals. Italy is about to have the Nito ATP finals. Matteo Berrettini is in the top 10. Fabio has been in the top 10. Yannick Sinner is the youngest player in the top 100. 
So my question is, is the future of tennis Italian? I think so, and uh, I hope so, because uh, at the moment we are the future, but you never know. Uh, Canada has a lot of players, um, Spain always uh, has a good school, Fran France uh, as always. But tennis, I think now, especially on boys, they are doing like a really great job and hope to, to join the, the team of the top 100 and to be one of the youngest guy in the, in the tour. And I'm sure after being the first player born in 2002 to win an ATP tour match, you're hoping to be part of that future too. Yeah, of course, of course. And uh, yeah, with the with the win of yesterday night, uh, yeah, I was. Uh, I mean, I, I didn't I didn't know like before the match if if I won, uh, I'm gonna be the the first 2002. But I mean, I, it's not so. I mean, I I don't matter, but uh, it's like an achievement. <laughs> we last spoke to you at a challenger in Milan. You made the semi-finals. You gave an interview. And you said, one day I want to be earning points to make a Grand Slam main draw and compete on the ATP Tour. So here we are in Rome. You have points. You're winning matches. Are you excited? Yeah, so much. And uh, I'm, uh, I'm really, really happy to, to be here and uh, to play like uh, in, at home. Because here in Rome... Uh, Without crowd, uh, it's uh, it's not so good, but uh, it's uh, it's always uh, for Italian and uh, for for Italians, it's the best thing of uh, of tennis. Absolutely. And what has the Challenger Tour done for you to get you ready for the ATP Tour? In the ATP Challenger Tour, I, I did a lot of experience. Uh, also, in the last month, I I made semi-final in Trieste, and I played a lot of matches with the. With uh, great guys, uh, young guys, also like uh, Carlos Alcaraz that uh, I've lost with uh, in the semi-final, and uh, here I played with uh, Zapata that uh, he recently won the Challenger in Cardinals. So I think uh, Challenger Tour is uh, first step to 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 grow and to become the ATP Tour uh, player. He's certainly a very calm and collected young man at the age of 18. Those two wins were impressive. Big stage, beats uh, Vavrinka. Well, Vavrinka was obviously short of match practice and Nishikori the same. But nonetheless, that's good. Are we in danger of getting too excited about uh, Lorenzo Mazzetti? Um, I think his performances this week, obviously you've got to get excited about him because regardless of whether Varinka had, has not played a lot, he, he came into this having played uh, smaller, slightly smaller events and he had won seven matches already on the clay. So he, he didn't come into it with low confidence. Varinka was ready to play that match, but this this young man, he's, he's so posed, he's so level-headed. He has very high expectations for himself and he doesn't seem in any way phased by by the big names at all in, in that, in the way that he beat Varinka and the way that he followed it up the next day by, by beating Nishikori. I mean, those are huge names and he's so young that their careers are so relevant to, to him and he would have watched Varinka play in his three Grand Slam winning finals and he would have watched Nishikori play in the final of the US Open but he did not play against the name at all. He was just 
just calm, level-headed. And I think there is an element of to be very, very excited about him. But at the same time, there's still an, an awful lot of development for him. He's a great clay court player at the moment. But the Tour, as we know, there's so much to it. He's got to develop his game on all the surfaces, got to develop the game on the hard court, but also the, the grass court. And then you've got the element of when you're young and you're coming onto the tour and you're free and you can just play and no expectations really, that's what's wonderful. But then the pressure starts to build and that's whenever we really see what type of player he is. Yeah, you get an injury, you have ranking points to defend. One of the things that I think that might really help him is that he, he seems to be coming into a remarkable generation of Italian players. I mean, there's um, Berrettini, who's the top ranked player at the moment, uh, quarter finalist uh, this past week. Um, there's Yannick Zinner, um, there's uh, Fabio Fonini, who seems to be playing almost like a, a godfather role uh, because he's now in his 30s, but still, you know, top 20 player. Um, players like Marco Cecchinato, who's gone a little bit off the boil, but, you know, may have a, um, a revival at some stage. And there are others as well. Uh, Stefano Travaglia got through to the third round uh, in Rome. And in some ways, I see Sinner and... Uh, Musetti, a bit like Ogier-Aliassim and Shapovalov mm -hmm. uh, in Canada. And I think when you hunt in pairs, you have a, a much greater chance of getting the best out of yourself because you never quite want to be the number two in your own country. And yet the reason I talk about the contrast between Ogier-Aliassim and Shapovalov is that they're two players of very different styles. Ogier-Aliassim and Zinner are the solid backcourt players who do everything well and you just got to play an outstanding match to beat them. Whereas Musetti and Shapovalov are the flair players. So they're absolutely, you've got it completely right. And um, the tennis, that's one aspect of it. But as you say, Chris, like traveling as well around the world with the same people from your country, that's one thing and that's fantastic. But also having these role models that are older than you and like they do it in, in Italy at the moment, eight players inside the top 100 in the world, eight men, which is exceptional. I think the US have nine in the top 100 in the world and nobody in the top 20. So when you look at Italian tennis right now, it is absolutely flying. They've got the next gen finals. They've got the ATP finals coming um, in 2021. And um, it's, you know, the, the world is their oyster, but I think he's had so much exposure, hasn't he? And he talks about that with playing with Berrettini and Fognini. When you're young and you're able to train along the likes of those types of players, you start to learn good habits, don't you? You start to learn what, what is the level at the top of the tour, not just in terms of the game, but also how they're living their lives. And and I think that's something with which all of those Musetti and Sinner, that's only going to be good for them. Yeah, and Sinner featured this week also. And he, he had a couple of good wins. And uh, he's another player who we've been excited about. I mean, he won the Next Gen title last year. And uh, he's a little bit ahead of Mosetti. And uh, he's being very much tipped to be a champion of the future as Yannick Sinner. But someone who was in the same position 12 years ago, Grigor Dimitrov, he was asked about Sinner and he had some wise words for the ATP Next Gen champion. I always say un until you don't become a champion, you can't say you're a champion. You know, this is, this is <laughs> I, I would say, one of the biggest mistakes when I was upcoming was when everybody was telling me, you know, this, all this, all this, you know, you're going to be a champion one day, you're going to be number one, okay, you know, whatever. Like, I never listened to those things, and, and so, um, so does he. He should not listen to all that. He should follow his way. Uh, I, always, I always say that, and, yeah, I've noticed a few of his games overall. Like, I would say in the past years, even when he played in the next gen, he's, he's already a very, what I like, he's already a very strong guy, like, meaning, like, his legs are very strong already for his age. 
So it can only, I feel it can only get better. Um, I, I, I have not played honestly enough against him. I've practiced a few times and, and you know, we always have good practices and he's very stable. Uh, he, he needs to start being consistent. That's, that's just how it is because yes, for example, the first set he was playing so loose. I mean, he was making such so many like deep balls and I mean, I was, I was thinking to myself, okay, He's loose. I get it. Like you know, like to myself, like I get it. So the second set, as soon as I, he had this break up, I I felt mentally I was already ahead of him for some reason. Even though I was a breakdown, I started using my slice a little bit more, and he was trying to overpower. He, he tried to overpower me in a sense that he wanted to like kind of blow me off the court, for example. You know, and this is this is experience. That's just how it is. However you look at it, it's just experience. And then obviously a break back, I started stepping a little bit more. And even in the third set, again, you know, he started, even though I was 4-1 up, he was like, I felt he was a bit tired, but then yet he kept on shooting balls and got the break back, like unbelievable. Like, so I was like, okay, I cannot say much about it. Um, but he's yet to develop his game. He's yet to develop his game. I think, uh, I think Ricardo is doing a great job with him and, um, I think time can only should, can only tell for him. That's just how it is, how it is. And he's already playing good on on on. I mean, I think on Hardy he's playing really well. Even on clay today was I, I thought it was a very good match on his end. It's Grigor Dimitrov on Yannick Zinner. He explains experience beautifully. Well, he's he's had so much of it, hasn't he, Grigor Dimitrov? At 28 years of age, he's he's been around at the game for an awfully long time. It was 16 when he became the world junior number one. He went through all of that experience in the junior circuit, and then he in, in, then he came onto the onto the uh, onto the ATP circuit, kind of burst through it. And and also at that time for for him, he was in the same situation, wasn't he? He was the guy that everybody called baby Fed, and that he was going to potentially be the one that took over Federer, uh, and it just didn't happen for him. So. He has an awful lot of experience to call upon for a player like Sinner. And um, and actually, you know, we were just saying, he, he might make a pretty good coach one day. Well, yeah, I mean, I thought he was uh, commenting really well there. And uh, you listen to the ATP Tennis Radio podcast with Claire Curran and me, Chris Bowers. We're going to go back to Dimitrov for more of that wisdom. Because uh, we went through a stage in tennis where players in their late teens and early 20s didn't really make that much of an impression. But talk of Musetti and Sinner and others were back to having some serious contenders who were barely into their 20s. Shapovalov getting to the semi-finals here at the age of 21. Dimitrov offered his thoughts on the fact that tennis does now appear to have three distinct generations. Well, I mean, I remember when I was at that age, you know, and I never, I never felt like I took it for granted, but it was always, um, like each one of them are very different, I feel, from one another. Like, for example, when I was 19, 20 or 21, I was this skinny kid that I, I, I had no, I didn't have enough of my body to be able to compete against the big, the big guys. Now all of a sudden you come out and you have these guys like they're 19, 20, 21. I mean, they're already like already so well developed that this already plays a big role in the game. But I always say tennis is not a sprint. Um, tennis is a marathon. So it's going to be here and there. You're going to have matches that you're just going to win with experience. And I think in a sense, that's in a, in a way, that's what happened today. I mean, I know what it is to be 19 years old and you have nothing to lose and everything to gain. And, you know, you come out and you're so loose in your shots and you make unbelievable uh, plays at, at, at the toughest time. So 
of course it's not the easiest uh, uh, I mean for example for the older guys it's not the easiest sort of way to compete against I mean for sure we're gonna have more pressure but that's what also makes things outside um, why this suits a little bit more for us is because we can lean on the experience and we can kind of go deep down in that zone and, and be uh, and be more aware of the situations with whatever situation we need to face and and I, I really I mean I appreciate those matches a lot a lot more and a lot different right now than um, than before and it's gonna be more and more like this in the future he makes a lot of sense, Claire, but I do wonder at times whether he's just slightly trying to rationalise the fact that his generation has slightly got missed out. Because you, you know, you had the uh, big three or big four of Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, Murray, and Vavrinka won three slams as well. Then you've got the next generation of Raonic, Dimitrov, Nishikori, Chilich, one Grand Slam title between that lot, and now really the next generation teams probably just a little bit older than most of them. But the likes of Zverev and uh, Shapovalov and Ogiales perhaps coming through as well, uh, Tsitsipas. That middle generation that Dimitrov is a member of has slightly missed out. And I just wonder whether he was trying to do a bit of post-hoc rationalization of that. Well, he talks, doesn't he, a lot about the, this next generation and how when they came on, to, when they've come onto the tour now at 19, they're totally different specimens to whenever he came onto the tour. And in many ways, he's right. I mean, the game has moved on so much, even from the very young kids starting to play tennis now at eight, nine, 10 years of age. These kids are already being influenced by strength and conditioning coaches. They're starting to get influences on the sports psychology as well. They've got their tennis coaches. I mean, there's team of, of people around young developing players that whenever he was growing up he didn't he didn't have that and that's whenever he talks about whenever these guys now are coming on tour they're already strong they're stronger than he was at that age um, but but he mentions that it's experience isn't it? it's the experience that he has that he has to delve into to try to navigate his way through those situations that he knows that at that age he, he didn't have himself. And in fairness to Dimitrov, he was willing to acknowledge that uh, it's not just that his generation maybe didn't live up to expectations, but that actually the big three are something special. This is what he had to say about Federer and Nadal Djokovic. I don't think they, you can compare one person to the other, especially when, when it comes to these, like those guys' caliber, that's just how it is. Like I've always said it and I always I will always say it, these guys are just what they have achieved already in tennis. It's, I mean, it's hard to match for anyone. As I mean, each one on their own. Um, I think, I hate to say it that way. I'm not sure they really care about those numbers. Those guys. I mean, and because just they they breed eat tennis, and that's that's, that's just the passion of the game. Um, it's just how it is. I mean, I've, I've, I've been lucky enough to spend quite a bit of time with each one of them um, just on our own. And it's never about that. It's never about, yes, number is a number. I get that point. Don't get me wrong. Yes, we all want to, yeah. But for them, I think it's more than that. You know, it's bigger than the game. And I think that's, that's what is going on between them three. So... I mean, who am I to say, I mean, I can only say my opinion on that, but who am I to, to judge these guys? No chance. I, I, I refuse to and I don't want to. Um, you can only get the, you know, the good examples, um, see their mental state of mind every time they play on a different, uh, on a different level, whether it's, I mean, first, for me, one of the greatest players 
are, are clearly are them. And at the beginning of their tournaments is probably one of the one. Of, that's why they're the best players because some of the first matches are one of the most important ones, and they they really come through as the champions. And they they just pick up speed, and then it's very hard to to kind of beat them in in a later a later stage in the tournament. Well, uh, at the start of this week. Novak Djokovic exceeded Pete Sampras's record for weeks at number one. There's only now Federer ahead of Djokovic. And uh, when Djokovic goes to Roland Garros, he will be looking for his 18th Grand Slam title and to be the first man to do all four majors twice or better. And so, much as Dimitrov says it's not about numbers, I think at the back of their minds it is well you have to there has to be numbers in, involved doesn't there you can't you can't be going after what, what they these three are going after and not be conscious of that i think you know if there's anything it, it's about each other isn't it if you take the numbers away it's just djokovic looking at isolation on, on federer and nadal having so much respect for them the way in which they prepare and work for tournaments the way in which they get to their very best level i think it's more about looking at each other and trying to do better in in those departments but I think Djokovic it's actually interesting it's been a little bit of an advantage hasn't it because he's the younger one so he's the guy who's been able to look at Federer to begin with look at what he's been doing Federer's raised the bar and Djokovic sits kind of quietly behind and he can just keep kind of edging closer and, and surpassing that I think it certainly has helped him it has in that respect I think he also slightly resents the fact that Federer gets all the attention and that the, the world seems to love Roger Federer there is reception he, he gets but you know Djokovic uh, yeah I mean the numbers may well eventually finish in his favor I remember Martina Vratilova saying once that if you play long enough you'll eventually beat all these records but I think sometimes that's what it has to keep players going they have to have something that they go for and uh, you know at the end of this week Djokovic hasn't played his best tennis and yet he still had a good week in Rome and you know it might not be it might be like a tennis match it's not how you start it it's how you finish it and when it comes to popularity for Djokovic it might not be how it started but at the end of his career how popular is he and, and an awful lot of times that comes down to the fact that people really understand and respect what you've done to achieve those goals well that concludes our look back at the week in Rome that was the week that was now for what's to come you're listening to the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. Available on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn and ATPTour.com. So, Claire Curran, we look to the future. This week we have the tournament in Hamburg. There are a number of players there who might fancy their chances at Roland Garros who wouldn't normally play a tournament in the week before a major, but this is an unusual, cramped season, so it's understandable that someone like Daniel Medvedev is there. But we look forward to Roland Garros, which begins on Sunday, the third and final Grand Slam of the season. Well, it's brilliant that it is actually being played and obviously on the back of the US Open. But going into the French Open, you've still got to think that Rafael Nadal, despite not winning here in Rome and not getting to play Djokovic, you still feel that he is the, the man to beat in, uh, in Paris. You've obviously got Dominique Team coming back. He will be very, very confident. And I think a little bit looser having uh, won the US Open. He's played in the final twice before. So he's going to be very, very difficult to beat. And it's going to be interesting to see once, if he gets through week number one, it'll be interesting to see team kind of relaxing again and opening up those shoulders playing into week number two. But Novak Djokovic, he certainly asked some questions. And, and when Nadal took that flight back home, now there's a lot more pressure on his shoulders because he knows that Djokovic has responded. And um, he's responded emphatically by winning in Rome. 
Well, you've queued up my next question beautifully because I was going to say to you, apart from Nadal, Djokovic and team, is there anybody you see who could possibly win the men's singles title? It's um, obviously it's a it's a great question. Um, the answer for me really is no. I think it's about those those guys. Um, obviously, you're going to have people who are going to try to contend for it. You're going to have a Medvedev kind of coming in and a Sitsipas who I love playing on the clay, but I think too early for them. Very maybe a little bit too early for them. No, the French Open. It's back to. Djokovic, Nadal, and now the new Grand Slam champion, Dominic Team. Yeah, the one player I see who might just have a chance is Medvedev, because he has the physical strength. I don't think Rublev is ready yet. I agree with you that Tsitsipas isn't ready yet. But I just think that Medvedev, if he has a reasonable draw, he is strong as an ox. And... He will run for everything. Whether he can hit through the clay may depend a little bit on the weather. Yeah, the weather will make a massive difference, and that's something I'm really interested to see. Paris in October, we spoke about it during the week, but playing the finals weekend and the semi-finals weekend, that kind of week 9th, 10th of October, those conditions could potentially be very, very different than they are back in uh, at the start of June. And I think that for Nadal, that's not good news. But for a player like Djokovic and also for Medvedev, that certainly helps them and their game styles because they're not using so much spin on the ball and they don't need that spin to come off the ground. Heavier conditions will stop that happening um, as much. But it is definitely fascinating. Another fascinating aspect of it is that for Nadal, you're back to five sets, and he hasn't played for eight months. And he's only played three matches, and no amount of training on the court can recreate that five-set tennis that he's going to have to face potentially in Paris. And if we get back to the numbers in a historical context, uh, context, Federer has 20 Grand Slam singles titles, Nadal has 19, Djokovic has 17. What sort of pressure will that exert on Nadal or Djokovic? Um, that's a really good question. I, I think that uh, in the other context of it, it, for Nadal, it's probably a little bit less because Djokovic didn't win in New York, and that could have been an altogether kind of different story. But I think Nadal, the pressure is on him. This is the Grand Slam at this stage that, that, that he really believes that he should be winning each year and edging closer to Djokovic. And if he doesn't do it, then there's an and it's a, and it's Djokovic who does do it. Sorry, edging towards Federer, but if it's it's Djokovic who does it, then for Nadal, I think that will be an absolutely massive body blow. I know we seem to say this every year, but is this Nadal's last chance? In the sense that at 34, and he puts his body through such punishment, eventually he will get to a point where he just can't do it anymore. Federer plays, I think Federer's 39, but he plays his effortless, uh, incredibly energy-efficient tennis. Nadal doesn't. Yeah, and do you know, I've thought that so often, really, even in the last decade, and actually early on in Nadal's career, I remember thinking to myself, it's going to be very difficult for this guy to play late into his 20s because of that physicality and brutality that, that he brings to the game. But he's clearly been able to find a way. And I would assume that during that layoff period that he had, that also gave his body a really good opportunity to rest. There was a period that he didn't play any tennis at all and that will have helped him so I hope the answer to that question is no because if this was really the last Nadal French uh, open opportunity that would be that would be very sad for me and I'm sure it'd be very sad for the rest of the world and we hope that he's going to have many more to come.
Well, I have the feeling that there will be someone who we're not thinking of who will make a run to the latter stages, quarter semi. Someone like an Auger Aliassime mm. or uh, possibly even Kaspar Ruud, who was a semi-finalist in, in Rome this week. But uh, maybe Diego Schwarzman, who got to the final. I think we'll have, because of the unusual conditions, we'll probably have some unusual results and somebody featuring in the last eight, possibly last four, who is a bit different. Claire Curran, thank you very much indeed. That brings us to the end of this uh, podcast. Don't forget, next week's podcast will be looking forward to the French Open, a fascinating 15 days. The French word for fortnight is quinzen, which means 15, and that is the French Open for you. So that will be coming up next weekend, and then we'll be broadcasting every day the French Open, the courtesy of Radio Roland Garros. ATP Tennis Radio will be rebroadcasting that through all the usual channels. I'm Chris Powers. Thanks for being with us and stay tuned for next week's podcast here on ATP Tennis Radio. If you like this podcast, please search the iTunes store for ATP Tennis Radio to leave a review. review.